what are you it's so yeah can you give us like a punchy cold open tell us something funny ah, fuck um yeah what are we looking at <laughs> okay so zeke you've drawn this map here at the top it says how to control the world I feel like this is um, the second of of two episodes now where I've gone into like kind of the uh, Alex Jones territory, where I'm now like this. We might even have to do a third just so we can round out a trilogy of like my, um, like you know my dark room filled with insane yarn maps. I like this. you're like you're like an archaeologist or something. Like uh... I am. You are a, a conspiracy detective or something. You're, you're going into these strange places and and find making these maps. Yeah. Oh, it's true. This has been um, kind of a fixation of mine for years and years, actually. Um, okay. The idea of, or the kind of discipline of geopolitics, um, which is a legitimate field of study and so on. Um, geopolitics. Geopolitics, as in like okay. geography and politics. Um, the, there's a somewhat well-known book you see it in like airport bookstores called the next hundred years remember that book I showed it to you a while ago the next hundred years yes I, I believe I remember this it's a book of predictions so the way that, that guy makes predictions is based on like a geopolitics model uh, right so you know this is a fairly legitimate way of um, kind of analyzing the like things going like analyzing world uh dynamics and it's you know in theory at least it's to be used by people in uh positions high up in power who are like diplomats or uh generals or you know work for the state department or have like top bureaucracy jobs right. it's uh it's, it's, it's game theory plus geography. Is that kind of the idea or what? Yeah, I never really understood. Like, I never really knew what people meant when they said game theory. But like, this is, it's, it's essentially like, you know, you, th you think of like, a doctor goes to school to learn how to like, like to learn anatomy, learn how to use a scalpel, things like that. People who are engaged in kind of high level um, uh, sort of politics, power politics, go to school and one of the classes they would, one of the disciplines is geopolitics. It's, it's a, a model, a framework for people who want to be able to do strategy on a global scale. Um, and, and so uh, why would somebody in the airport want to know about this? That more probably just for the predictions. Cause it's kind of like in 2050, Turkey will invade will attempt to attack the United States and will be repelled right. by the moon base full of rockets. Cause it's like, it's just like, it's <laughs> silly. Right. But it's, it's all, it's, it's using this model where, um, which, you know, and, and we'll get into what the, like the kind of core principles of geopolitics are. Um, but in any case, you're talking about a way of thinking that holds certain, certain things and methods to be true and, and, and like uh, universally accurate. Um, I uh, would have to say after, you know, a few years of, of, of like kind of 
amateurishly following dabbling in this kind of thing. I don't think that this is like a secret key to truth about anything. Um, but it presents itself as one. Yeah, it's supposed to be like raw data, like, you know, rash, completely rational objective, you know, not ideological, right? right? Um, but it is, it really is, um, comes out of a, a, a like a position of thinking in which you are, your goal is grand strategy, you are trying to control the world, right? Um, we, we can assume that, I would say, because the origins of this school of thought are basically um, sort of, uh, it, it, the era is, is the sort of Victorian British Empire, late Victorian, possibly even after, pre-World War I. And the people coming up with the theories are like, you know, members of the Royal Geographical Society, members of the uh, like Admiralty. Um, and, and so they're people who are imperialists, right? And uh, so geopolitics is a method of doing imperialism. Um, or it is a, uh, a school of thought on how to do imperialism, um, I think we can say. All right. All right. Uh, that being said, there's some extremely dorky words we can start with by like kind of defining. Um, all right. Well, uh, where should we start then? Just with the most absurd words of all, um, Talassian. Talassian. And Telluric. Telluric. They Any sound idea? like Greek city, state, army people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that one word kind of sounds like Thessaly or Thessaly or like some Greek thing. There you go. Yeah. Um, they also kind of sound like like kind of World of Warcraft or like Star Trek civilizations, and essentially that's kind of the mindset of this, right? Is it's like um, uh, Thalassian is sea maritime based powers and civilizations. Uh, Tellurian or Telluric is. Um, uh, land-based in in a nutshell um and like the significance of that is obviously britain as an empire was uh naval navy navy a navy based um uh thing they, they were dominant because they controlled the oceans right not because they had a lot of territory um so like the athenians like yeah yeah exactly and um so in some sense, it's, it's kind of just a way for the British to like identify themselves with the Athenians. Is that fair? Or, or am I, it might be. psychoanalytic about it. It seems like the kind of thing these people would do, right? These, like, these over-educated snobby people who want to turn everything into like, like a nerd well, yeah, theory. Yeah, it justifies empire, right? If you're, if you're bringing light to the world. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't see a lot of like... Uh, um, ideological Greek throwback stuff in people who write about geopolitics. Again, they try to keep it more, you know, science-y. Um, but it's like, uh, they're, they're looking at, you know, trade and commerce as like the kind of core things that their empires made out of rather than, you know, Napoleon's empire marching across the continent. Right. Um, Those dirty French. Yeah, of course. Makes yeah. Sense. Right. They don't, they, they don't want to identify, to associate themselves with that that like style and um by the point that this is happening i think it's a little bit later in the um 19th century and so the i think that the land-based power that 
they're really focusing on, and we'll, I'll explain why, is the Russian Empire, right? Like the Russian Empire is this massive chunk of land, and it really still is. It hasn't changed that much from what the British were looking at. And they were competing in the great game, right? They were competing for India and Afghanistan and stuff like that, right? That just sounds like something that, like, my very British great uncle would say. Like, the great, the great game? game. Yeah. What, yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that is? The great game is like actually a term that they use, these imperialists um, in the 19th century, because the, the, they wanted India, or they had India, I guess. The British had India, and Russia has a, you know, a, a, a land, like access to India via land. So they, they were always a threat to kind of move in on it. And so, um, there was a big acceleration of like espionage work of like kind of, um, you know, agents going in and like kind of maneuvering different sides in the you know, Indian population. And, and then there was a big war over Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, basically this is two European, uh, ivory tower, um, powers, um, trying to control, uh, a very distant, um, at least for the British, a very distant, uh, subcontinent that, that right. really they had no right to do. And so they were, um, ignoring that fact, ignoring any kind of like, you know, idea of like sovereignty of, for the Indians or whatever. And they were basically saying, yeah, this is a chessboard. We're competing with the Russians, another kind of like imperial European power. Right. So it's like, it's quite explicitly like, you know, I don't mean to, to go too far afield, but um, you know, there's a critical race perspective on that. Charles Mills talks about this, you know, that these other places, uh, these other places, places like India, places like Africa, places like the New World, were yeah. the objects of right. colonial contracts. And that, and it's, you know, they were not subject to social contracts. So that process the racial contract. So, but, but anyway, it would be quite fun to be the sort of like, Upper class British tweet of the year, whose job it was to move the, the chess pieces around on, uh, on this great big risk board. You know, chess and risk; those are both games. Chess, risk, yeah, the same idea, right? right. Like, yeah. I mean, that you're like, you're right. It does seem, in a way, at least they seem to think it was very fun because they come up with words like thalassic and tellurian to describe it, right? Because right. that's the, that's what they're spending their time doing. I mean, of course, the point is this is not a game. It was a devastating process, right? Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I keep looking for? There's a whole like framework, um, that people learn when they are like, grooming themselves to become powerful bureaucrats and, uh, strategists and, and it like kind of winds them up to think in these terms. Right. Um, so that's why you get some stupid words because obviously it doesn't relate to, you know, reality, at least how most of us live it. Um, so you have to have stupid words for that. Um, let's kind of talk a little bit about the principles of, um, of, of geopolitics. Like, um, so you've got sea-based powers and you've got land-based powers, right? Why is that significant? Well, they deal with um, kind of the fundamental elements of kind of material reality in different ways, right? So uh, sea-based power like an island, like Britain, a very small island, they're not going to generate a lot of their own um, natural, they're not going to uh, generate resources like agriculture, mining on the same level as a mass, like a full continent like Russia is. So what they do is they, um, 
control the system by which resources are traded. And obviously we're talking about maritime trade routes and they control choke points that are very important choke points in those trade routes. So that's why the British were in Hong Kong up until 1999, or that's what Singapore was about, or, or um, you know, the, uh, the, like the Horn of Africa, the Suez Canal, all these places where like, uh, like sort of um, uh, threads of, of shipping would, would converge. And, and then, um, so this is your move. If you're a thalassic country, what mm -hmm. you want to do is, is hold the choke points, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, the Rock of Gibraltar, the Hong yeah. Kong. As opposed to what, right? As opposed to control a massive amount of land and take its resources and, and, and uh, um, in a feudal sort of sense, like just... Uh, yeah, why have the Congo when you can just have the port that all the rubber goes out of? Or all the mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in Russia, you've got all these kulaks out there in the steppe, like, you know, getting a small, um, a few bales of hay from their serfs, and then they donate half of that to the emperor, and that's how he gets his nut, right? So, um, so yeah, so your thalassic powers, they control uh, trade routes, and... Um, they control resources. And the other thing, of course, the British at this time were doing was um, uh, global banking cartels, right? The city of London. Um, <laughs> at that time. And, and still are, of course, but uh, like that, that, that it was firmly in place, at least by this point, right? It wasn't just free range adventure capitalism anymore. It was the manipulation of currencies. It was, um, you know, the, uh, the control of a gold standard. Um, so. Then I guess the question is, what do you do with these uh, land-based powers that are all around the world? I don't know. A finger? What was that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just showing you my new. Uh, oh yeah, that's, that's looking pretty good. Mike's got a uh, fake finger. I broke my finger. Um. Yeah. So places like Russia, right? They're a threat. Um, Why are they a threat, though? I thought if they just want a different thing, what's threatening about them? Like, here's a question. If mm. you control all the ports, isn't it to your advantage to let somebody else do all the subjugating of people in the middle of the continent and stuff? Yeah, that's, a, that's true. Um, so, again, geopolitics is, like, trying to tie everything back to geography, right? So they look at um, the map, and they're saying, okay, here's certain areas that uh, basically a sea power um, couldn't control if it was all held against them, right? So if, like, if you look at a certain mountain range that blocks you here or uh, uh, um, like a, a river that doesn't flow in the right direction there, then you're looking at a, a chunk of land that that's not, you don't have access to from this, from, as a sea power. Halford Mackinder is the British guy who's who this whole sort of theory goes back to is mostly often attributed to Sir Halford Mackinder, okay? Uh, Royal Geography Society guy or whatever that's called. Um, he, he proposed this thing called Heartland Theory. He says that Eurasia, basically the entire continent uh, from uh, the Chinese coast, like the Pacific coast of China all the way to Paris is the heartland, it's the world island and it's the geographical pivot of history. What is? All that Eurasia? space, basically everything from China to Paris, right? Okay. Uh, so not the New World, not Africa. Has anyone ever controlled the whole thing? 
Well, no, right? Okay. No, no one's ever controlled the whole thing. Um, that's the point. If someone were to control the whole thing, yes. they would be some kind of James Bond villain. You have, uh, you figured it out. I don't know how okay. you did it, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, they, I have the help of your clever map here. Yeah, my clever map, yeah. So, the, Halford McKinder's point was that if anyone ever controls the world island, then uh, they'll control the world. Like, there, there won't be, it won't be possible for these Thalassian uh, network powers or these, like, choke point powers to contain it any longer. It would be uh, an indomitable force on Earth. So that's how you beat the British Empire, in theory. So, yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, I think that's what they were afraid of when they looked at Russia, right? They weren't really afraid of China because they already had China, like, you know, by the balls because of the Opium Wars and they had Hong Kong and they had, you know, different parts of Shanghai and stuff. They weren't really afraid of America yet, although I guess they were. But, like, you know, what, they, what, what McKinder was looking at was the Russian Empire. That's our big competition. And, and we're really fucked if they... They bring China under their yoke. They bring India under their yoke. Um, nothing at that were point. They, so basically, were they to become a more, a better empire, they would be a better empire. Is yeah, because of their position. Okay. Right? So, like, they're not worried about that if, uh, like, you know, the, if you transplant the Romanovs into um, Egypt uh, and they start to, to, to expand. Britain still thinks they can handle that. Um, but if, if, they're, if they're looking at the Russian Empire, where it is, controlling Eurasia, um, yeah, the theory, and, and there's points about geography in here that I don't know anything about. Like, I don't really know how he adds it up and figures this out. But, but that's what he decides. But the that's the point, is, is that the, the world island controls, um, controls the world. Okay, so right? can I ask a question about this? I guess so. As an annoying person, like, I fully recognize that the question I'm about to ask you is annoying. And so feel <laughs> free to say no. But as, as a person who has spent much of his life, well, not much of his, but much of, a bit of time explaining to people that even though, um, you know, Marx predicted the fall of capitalism by now and it hasn't happened, there's still something to be learned from Marxism. Right. And, and that I think the analysis is still right about something. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not how the British Empire fell apart. Like, I, I just feel like it, it bears pointing out, like, this, mm. this science um, seems to have a large blind spot, which is, like, whatever actually was the end of the British Empire. Because it, it wasn't somebody controlling the world island. And, like, and, and like communism dismantled the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. So, does it account for that, or? Uh, I think we'll I think we'll get to something that that maybe answers your question because I think that I guess the the annoying response to your annoying question is that actually the British Empire didn't didn't collapse. Yeah. Okay. Got it. It, it just transplanted into. Um, it sort of reconsolidated uh, under American hegemony or something. Yeah, the you know the the sort of deep state American bureaucracy that kind of makes makes big time decisions um, is essentially the same one that was doing so for the British Empire. Well, that would, that would, um, that would work for the, for the hoary old Marxist in me. So that's fine with me. Oh, okay. Well, that was easy. Yeah. All right. But it would, it would also suggest that the, the great game doesn't actually take place between nations then. It's a class still. Building. But anyway, doesn't matter. Continue. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit more of a tricky one. I, I don't think I don't think we can. I, I'm not sure I'll answer that one here. But uh, um, the great game, like, as far as it's relevant here, it's it really is just like Britain looking at Russia and being like, we're different. We approach this with a different strategy than they would. We need to make that strategy beat them. Right. We need to make that strategy. Uh, I, I, I guess I would just say, like, it turns out you didn't. It turns out there are other <laughs> things you should have been paying attention. Right, right. But whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, and okay, fair enough. So, uh, but there was one thing that I, I, I thought was relevant, maybe to finish up this little section, is essentially what that comes down to is they can't allow Russia and Germany to combine in any way, shape, or form. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, you know, as, as long as it stops uh, on the other side of Poland or the Ukraine or whatever, the Eurasian heartland is not dominant yet. It has to make it into Europe somehow. And so when they see uh, Germany building up in the you know, middle to the end of the uh, 19th century, they're like, okay, like now we have two powers that if they ever combine against us are going to be good enough to beat us. So they uh, focus on basically um, making sure that doesn't happen, right? Uh, so what have we talked about? Okay, the British Empire dominates trades, trade routes. Um, it dominates resources through like currency and through you know these like kind of foreign offices or or choke points where they dominate. Um, some sometimes like with military um, occupation, like on a grand scale as well. Um, and then and then just so yeah. So then so what's to be done with these uh, with these land based powers that that operate on a by a different set of rules and strategies? The British Empire thinks that well, they can they can man they can they can maintain a balance of power in areas far from home by propping up one land-based power or one kind of like you know um, one kind of like regional uh, power, and then maybe propping up their rival a little bit too, and then like kind of insinuating their agents into both sides. Um, maybe like kind of manipulating their currencies a little bit so that they know so that the, the trade that goes on is like completely under the British bank's power. Um, what would be some examples of that? Like, I don't even really know in the British empire, but um, like they, they, after, after the um, Napoleonic wars, there was that Congress of Vienna. Right. And so that, at that point, the British empire actually attempted to do this in Europe. They tried to have like, you know, like Austria played off against like, I don't know, Bavaria or Italy. And they wanted to have their little agents and their little bankers insinuated in the business of all of these other powers. And then when something was threatening, right? Something looked like, okay, well now, now you know, Italy looks powerful enough. Maybe they're gonna like swoop into Northern Europe and like kind of create a, a broader sphere of influence. Then that's time to see a little bit of help to Austria and push them back, right? So, uh, so that's sort of the, um, the kind of like, the Middle East, right? Like that's the 19th century and yeah, for sure. Shaw I mean, comes from Iran and stuff, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Um, this has been like, has never gone away as the core of kind of grand strategy, right? Is it, it, it really is. And you can talk about like how immoral or how like, it's like, you know, spooky, like these spooks everywhere and this deep state or whatever. Um, that controls things or that whole like sort of uh, suspicious looking activity, right? That these empires do. Um, it's not, it's not like uh, 
a gotcha moment when we see them doing it, right? It's, it is really the normal it's the functioning. It's, yeah. normal, it's normal functioning for, um, for, you know, imperialism, right? And, well, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you have to manage your empire. Yeah, and it's not it's officially an empire, right? Like, they don't actually, the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, 70s and 80s, like that is, uh, that's not, this stuff. that's textbook this stuff, right? You yeah. give a little bit of money to this side, you give weapons to that side, you tell, you feed information, whatever. It's not like America was specifically saying Iraq is a province of America. It's not an official empire, but it's, that's how imperialism is conducted, right? Um, this okay, stuff makes sense to me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so, so what you're saying is they sort of deployed, or at least the British Empire would use this theory of, of geopolitics to deploy their, um, yeah, management of, of these regions. The Middle yeah, East. And, so, and so people who go to like Oxford, Cambridge, and then like Harvard, Yale, whatever, are like trained to just be able to do it, right? Like, it's not an accident. It's a... Um, it's not like there's certain geniuses who like step back and say, ah, the world is a map that I can like right. play with. It's technocracy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very like um, systematically put into place. They make sure that they have apparatchiks who can deal with it. And those people tend to um, stick around uh, in the, um, in, in the bureaucracies of, you know, uh, uh, states that are engaged at this level, like kind of great power states. Um, We'll talk about some of them probably right now. Um, yeah, it's probably time to keep going here. We've heard a guy, heard of a guy called uh, Henry Kissinger, I would think. Um, oh, no. I, I mean, I, I have, but perhaps our listeners could use a quick refresher. Who's, who's he? Henry Kissinger is maybe the uh, finest example of one of these uh, apparatchiks, right? He's, um, he, I guess his like, highest kind of political office was under Nixon. Um, he was, I think, uh, national security advisor and secretary of state under Nixon, I believe. Um, right. Uh, Kissinger, uh, like, had a very long running um, uh, career starting at Harvard, where he, you know, uh, he did, uh, I forget what it was. I think he was a chair of defense or some chair of defense studies or something like that. So he's these, this, the, the type of person, he also, um, he was born in Europe, he, like he's a Jewish guy born in Europe. So he was like running away from Nazis, came to America um, and went to Harvard and then became like basically groomed to be exactly one of these grand strategists. Um, uh, Kissinger um, managed a fair amount of the Cold War for America um, between the mid I guess the late sixties and the seventies. Um, but he never really went away either. He's still alive, oddly enough. Um, he's outlasted a lot of these other people and, uh, you know, he never really quite goes away. The other thing with, uh, Kissinger, um, is many people will point out he's, he's always been, uh, closely tied to the Rockefeller family. Rockefellers, of course, American aristocrats. Um, they had political pretensions in the mid, 20th century. So wait, 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 wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Kissinger is tied to the Rockefellers. How? So the Rockefellers, um, 
through a number of think tanks, um, political projects, and so on, uh, pulled kind of Kissinger out of academia and into politics. Um, I see. One of the probably most significant things that the Rockefellers were very influential on is called the Council on Foreign Relations. It uh, is. Yes. I've heard a, of this. I don't really know what it is. Yeah, it's a massive think tank. Essentially, it takes um, the the British Empire's like kind of legacy uh, through connections to the British government, the British upper class, uh, British universities, and connects them to um, American counterparts in the same in the same um, kind of echelon. Oh, fuck. Have you have you heard the term Atlanticist? Never. Atlanticist meaning basically NATO, um, any kind of policy that connects like. Uh, uh, the U.S. and Britain on a sort of macro scale, transatlantic kind of. Yeah, way. got it. Okay. So Bretton Woods, the uh, monetary agreement that came out of World War II, which tied the pound, the franc, and the dollar to um, a, to a gold standard. Holy um, shit! That sounds like it's a podcast in and of itself, right now. Oh yeah, but that's that? a podcast you can find anywhere you want. <laughs> that's oh, really? a, a massively over uh, over commented study. That's some Alex Jones shit right there. Like. It's real, but it's also like it's got its fair share of nutcases who like to talk about it. Um, Yeah, so the Bretton Woods is like kind of an an Atlanticist arrangement. Um, Another one, which I think uh, is most important here, would be um, kind of at the same time as the Bretton Woods agreement, you get the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was um, basically uh, rebuilding after the devastation of World War II. Right, right. I feel like we're kind of skipping over a pretty important moment here. Oh. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but like... What would that be? The devastation of Europe in World War II. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, the thing that makes Marshall Plan necessary? Should we... Do we need not... Does that not matter? Well, I mean, uh, is, is there anything about that that you think people... That isn't just totally common knowledge? I mean, so there was Well, I just World don't War understand. II. So... We went from the British Empire. It seems like that's where, that's the end, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so, okay. Uh, how, do, how to explain? Um, World War II was won because uh, Russia and America were on the same side, right? And okay. Britain wasn't completely destroyed because they were also on that same side. But most of Europe, including Britain, was absolutely uh, reduced to kind of, rubble um they in order to get back up to um first world global north standards they needed a lot of loans right like they weren't there the the expense of the war and then the the destruction of the war had had brought europe down to a a, like a a, like a a medieval level of kind of um productive capacity um they were in debt uh, like crazy so um the Marshall Plan was the kind of like Western way of facilitating that rebuilding. America was came out of the war more industrial than ever. Um, they were able to put any number of tanks in any part of the world they wanted within a few minutes. Like th- like the American industry Fuck was yeah. top of the world, right? Yeah. Um, Russia basically had won the war, uh, at least in Europe 
through kind of just like the amount of people that died. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, the Soviet Union was not quite um, what it would be in a few years, but it was still like, you know, a a rival to American power. It was, it was, it was getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this new world emerging where, um, where it's like, okay, so the Russian empire, we don't, you know, where'd it go, but there is still basically the same geographical area controlled by a single uh, power. And it is like one of the top industrial powers in the world. Uh, The British empire. um, Yeah. It looks, it looks pretty knocked down. And like, I mean, it came out winning, but, um, but it's, it's, it's in rubble. However, um, it's controlled by a single power. So they just change places. Is that kind of the idea? Well, and it's now a bit more, bit more global too, right? Like, uh, although the British empire was active, of course, all around the world, like they, they had lost their, their continental foothold in the, in, in the U S colonies. So now you have like, uh, two continents really sized things. And, and the United States is still behaving like a maritime power, right? Because it controls the, the Atlantic and it controls the Pacific. Um, Russia doesn't have that. So Russia is now acting like a land-based power as they always were. Right. So now you have, again, that dynamic is there. There's one of each. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's no longer the Russian empire. It's the Soviet union and it's right. no longer the British empire. It's the American Republic. So it is a game. It's like the great game. It's still the same objective the positions are still the same it, it, they just happen to be occupied by slightly different players yeah so different versions of the same uh players really like kind right. of modernized bigger um, right but like industrial. You know, if you have the white chess pieces and i have the black chess pieces it doesn't really matter if you know it doesn't really matter who's got the pieces the the, the position is still the same sure yeah and and you're right because there are like you know British lords dictating policy to American like uh, spooks and stuff, right? Like right. American departments. And, and I, I don't know if there's much continuity between the Russian empire and the Soviet union, but maybe there is, who knows? Um, they seem like a completely different set of people, but they control the same. Right. And, and in from the perspective ground. that we're looking at, that's the only thing that matters. Right. That's all we're getting at. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so, there is a, a so the Marshall Plan though um, kind of throws a wrench in this thing because whereas we talked about the the sea power kind of mentality always being to let other people do the production and then you just kind of monetize it and trade it right um, the Marshall Plan is very different now we're talking about an America that is like not only pr- like industrially productive but like on a level that nowhere else in the world is. Fox. Um, they, they want, basically what they want is the rest of the world to catch up because if they stand alone in that sense, they can't get as much profit as they otherwise would be able to get, right? So like if you make specialized um, wrenches, like, and you make them in a factory that pumps them out, like, you know, Pretty fast, really yeah. fast, then you're basically wanting, you're hoping that there's enough factories out there that require those wrenches. Um, in order to make the cars that people are going to buy or whatever, right? So America isn't, uh, is not able to stand alone at the like, high level of industri- complex industrial production that they're doing. They need to have buyers. And they, those buyers need to be you know, countries that are stocked full of, of well-trained engineers, um, capital produ- like capital-intensive productive um, uh, operations, factories, 
whether they're from run by the state or private or whatever. So uh, with Europe in rubble and the rest of the world still kind of in the developing stage a lot of the time, at least other than, you know, certain areas, like certain unique areas, um, the Marshall Plan is a way to fix that by basically lending everybody money from America. Um, there's some uh, large global uh, organizations you might have heard of that came out of that, uh, Bretton Woods and, and era. For instance? Uh, uh, IMF. Oh, the bad yep. one. Ah. And uh, World Bank. Ooh, um, I like them. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this was like, you know, and this was an America that, um, you know, had, I guess Roosevelt had just died or was, uh, hadn't even quite died, but like, this is the New Deal America, right? This is the America that uh, loves to spend on industry, um, loves to spend on workers. Um, loves to boost production from, you know, a centralized state initiative. It's the best. To do. Um, yeah. This is a very different America than we're used to in our lifetimes, right? Uh, this is not like libertarians, small governments, no spending, whatever, austerity. And they're extending this all around the world. And that's what the Marshall Plan really is. Okay, Wait, so the Marshall Plan is about... I mean, it's very different. government money into the building of infrastructure and creating good middle-class jobs. Yeah, like in other countries. In other countries, those fucks. Yeah. How dare they? I mean, could this really be any, could this be more different, right, than, than, um, than what we were talking about with like a Thalassian kind of like empire, right? Like this isn't uh, purely suctioning money out of choke points and exploiting all of these like, you know, indentured, uh, peasant labor from all around the oh, world. This yes. is like trying to boost everywhere uh, up to an industrial capacity with your own cash flow. But I bet they've got a secret motive. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I think there was maybe six months to a year where, that, where there were a few people <laughs> involved in that process <laughs> where like, okay. yeah, they, they, where they had like a kind of a new deal for the world idea. But uh, Kissinger and uh, the Rockefellers and those types of like sort of oh, more Fox. Atlanticist uh, uh, influenced uh, minds uh, would be, other than that six month period, the uh, sort of managers and engineers of this process. Um, foreign aid boosts industrial production in not only, uh, not only in Europe, which was the Marshall Plan, but um, Truman's inaugural address was, involved the four point program. Uh, where it was basically the Marshall Plan, but for like the third world. So mm. the Middle East, um, parts of Asia and South America. Um, this is where Rockefeller comes in. Nelson Rockefeller was, um, he was in charge of some kind of like Asia, uh, no, what is it called? Uh, some, something to do with like um, inter-American alliance. So he was basically like doing propaganda in South America. And they basically took the, the four point program and, and meshed it together with that so that he could, like be uh he, he he therefore rockefeller becomes an integral um bureaucrat in the sort of four point program wait what, what so what are the four points can you run me through them real quick no it's you... the fourth point of the address very confusing um it, there aren't actually four points oh. uh so in his inaugural address um he went through three points which i don't know and then on point four he said we are going to start spending money on foreign aid um all foreign aid u.s foreign aid goes back to this uh, inaugural address interesting um so but but what you're saying is 
Rockefeller figured a way to get his beak in to this this program such that the this thing that was ostensibly about uh embiggening the hearts <laughs> of the third world or whatever uh became about and, and you know became or like you know maybe always was but what yeah. was actually about the embiggening of the bank accounts of people like the Rockefellers. is that what you're saying or not it is. I, I mean, I think like it's it's not for us to speculate what anyone's intention was like at the Bretton right. Woods conference or at the form, formation of the Marshall Plan. But like it did come to be governed by these individuals who have all these ties to the old British power and the new American. Well, not even new, but like the sort of the top, you know, the American elite. Um, and and they conducted it just the way they conduct. They still conduct things. Right. They, right. It, that That's. Um, so this mentality. thing you were saying a second ago where you were like, there were like six months of like, of, yeah, it of just, a it kind just, of ideological great society. I mean, it's New Deal, it's not the great society, but like yeah. a kind of hearts and minds share the wealth kind of moment yeah. to very quickly reverting back to a kind of extractionist imperial model. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what happened. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, like, okay. I think, um, I think it's, it's, it's a funny kind of blip, right? This Marshall Plan moment because it's totally informed by 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 ex, you know exceptional world conditions it's, it's the rebuilding of europe right um and, and it's it, and, and it's the the sort of this it almost seems like america is just like stunned by its own industrial power that's like how are we going to do this i actually have uh wait here there's a quote that i wanted to read um this comes from a victorian person named john hobson he was a critic of imperialism i'm just going to read a Fuck. quote um, okay, so quote, when productive capacity grew faster than consumer demand, there was very soon an excess of this capacity relative to consumer demand. And hence, there were few profitable domestic investment outlets. Foreign investment was the only answer. But insofar as the same problem existed in every industrialized capitalist country, such foreign investment was only possible if non-capitalist countries could be civilized christianized and uplifted that is if their traditional institutions could be forcefully destroyed and the people coercively brought under the domain of the invisible hand of market capitalism so imperialism was the only answer that's end quote so that's somebody speaking 100 years before it happened in america but america suddenly realizes like we can't keep this up with our own consumer base we need a consumer base around the world and the result of that is empire through capitalism. It's not even a consumer base, right? It's sorry. No, you're I right. I won't Go keep on. going back to my hoary old Marxist bullshit, but like yeah. it's it's like the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, right? Like Yeah, that's true. Um, Can you explain it? Briefly. I probably shouldn't have brought this up, but like basically <laughs> uh, through some contrivance of economics, uh, which I won't bother to explain right now, Marx theorizes that. Uh, well, he doesn't theorize, like it's just a fact that your return on investment gets gets lower over time, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, when an industry or a, a space of investment is new, there are fewer competitors, you can invest, you can start a company, you're the only one making the thing or whatever, you can pull out a big return on investment, but as competition uh, increases, everybody gets more efficient. And so the more money you put in, the less money you get back. But the idea is, with the, the, you know, 
cat catastrophe of World War II, suddenly everybody's wiped out and, and there's all this shit to invest in that's going to return a profit because mm-hmm. there's no competition and there's all this stuff to do. Like there's no infrastructure, right? You don't have to worry about the fact that German factories are more efficient than yours. So you don't have to buy fancy machines. You can just you know, crank out shit with crappy machines and make profit really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, that goes till the seventies and then guess what happens? You know, that doesn't happen anymore. So then we've got to start, uh, finding new places to put capital. So we start selling off things like hospitals and <laughs> public transit and so on and so forth. And you get neoliberalism, but that's, that's that story. So it, it actually kind of sounds like it syncs up with your story. That's all I'm saying. It does. It does. Exactly. And, and I think like the other aspect of that, um, worth mentioning is like, towards the latter end of that pro that process so like you know getting into the mid 70s now you you have the the united states trying to square that circle by just laundering debt in the like in the third world right so like um the dollar is supposed to be fixed to the to the gold standard that's part of the Bretton woods agreement right but the dollar they're artificially keeping it like 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 um like a big like like super um valuable right it's actually falling and uh and and they refuse to devalue it um and so when nixon is the president what they decide to do is like they've been under pressure from all these other world governments to say like hey like you guys are cheating here like you have to you have to adjust the value of the dollar and um but they there's nothing they can do they have they have to um they have to keep cheating or else they're like the the, the sort of uh, the completely uh way too expensive productive sector of the u.s is going to is going to completely fall apart right so what they do is they start laundering debt to the third world and to the rest of the world they're um they detach the dollar from gold and it becomes a floating currency and so the um the fact that everybody has to use the dollar to buy oil which is again goes back to the marshall plan everybody has to use the u.s dollar to buy oil everybody needs oil so everybody has to buy U.S. dollars. Um, it's no longer fixed to the gold standard. So you're now buying this floating currency that's whatever they say it is. Um, and that allows them to kind of um, offload the consumer debt in the U.S., which is being bought with dollars that are actually way less valuable than they appear to be, uh, onto other countries, right? Um, it's an annoying thing to talk about because I don't really understand monetary theory. But it's, that's sort of, I think that made sense. Um, so we kind of got ourselves into the uh, into the petrodollar era now. So let's summarize again. So British Empire, you dominate trade routes, you control resources, and you manage the balance of power around the world. Yeah. Marshall Plan era. So the U.S. is now the naval power. They're dominating trade routes. Um, they're controlling resources by uh, being the lender and and this sort of um, I guess the boss of all of the foreign production. So they're anybody who wants to build anything, they're borrowing U.S. money unless they're part of like the Warsaw Pact. Um, that is like the other side of the Cold War, the Soviet the bad guys. orbit. Yeah, and then the balance of power, right? I mean, yeah. that's obvious in the Cold War. It's it's the bipolar. It's the it's the Cold War. It's like you know, there's the Soviet orbit and there's the U.S. orbit. So when you have like a, a conflict between like, uh, you know, uh, Turks and Bulgarians, one of them is uh, 
you know, being supported by the US, one of them is being supported by the Soviets. And the trick is not so much like um, balancing power, like so that between like regional rivals, but balancing power so that your big rival never gets a step forward. Right. So, um, so you were talking about like um, Iraq, right? Um, it's, it's a really, this is a really interesting part of this. So uh, in the Middle East at the time, uh, there was a pan-Arab movement, right? Uh, Nasser in Egypt it was proposing that um, all of the Arab people around the Middle East could like just kind of get one government together and kind of assert themselves as a, um, like a, a power that could at least come to the table, right? Wouldn't be dominated by these like post-colonial. And like, it's worth pointing out that they were like secularist sort of social Democrats for the most part. Yeah, like, I mean, it was a military government. They weren't Islamists, theocrat, theocrats, right? Like these were. Yeah, if they, if they were like, the closest thing they, they were at the time was they were kind of like uh, socialist, like Marxists, I guess, but they weren't really. Um, they had absorbed a bunch of communists, I think, into their movement, but they were, they were not exactly that. So what they were were a, a nationalist uh, social movement, uh, not a Nazi movement, but like kind oh, yeah, of a nationalist were, social movement. Yeah, they were nationalists. They didn't want, they didn't want Britain and, and America yeah. calling the shots. They were anti-imperialist, right. but they were not Soviet. They were not Soviet, but they were able to work with the Soviets in some things, work with the British and others, sure. at least in, in theory, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the whole basis of it was they seized the Suez Canal, right? So one of these choke points that the British Empire had depended on, they'd lost control of, and now it was a regional, a regional uh, self-sovereign uh, party that was controlling it. And, you know, they, they took that as, as their, their, their right to be kind of have a seat at the table yeah. in global affairs. But and that's what I mean. Like, like I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to sort of highlight, right? Like, the reason this is a powerful story is because it explains things like this, right? And it explains the reaction from, thing, from the Ameri United States, who ideologically ought to be on the side of these people who are basically like the American revolutionaries. Right? Like they, they just want to self-govern. They have a pretty much liberal democratic state, right? Yeah. They're not, they are not aligned one way or the other in terms of the Cold War, right? Like they could be dealt with as a rational actor in the region. But um, so, so I'm just saying like, if the story of the Cold War is, it's, it's liberal democracy against uh, totalitarian Stalinism, these guys are liberal democracy, are they not? Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, in the kind of afterglow of that Marshall Plan moment that I talked about, the U.S. did stand by Nasser. Right. Um, Israel and Britain uh, uh, lobbied the U.S. to invade. The U.S. said, no, you're not taking the Suez back. That's, that's a bad call. Um, but that would change. And uh, um, there's other examples that I think are worth bringing up as well. Um, the Ba'ath Party, right, uh, which is again a kind of a parallel idea to to the Nasser Pan Arab thing. It's I think I think it basically comes about after Nasser's thing. Uh, either they they either got into some infighting or they lost ground or something. But outside of Egypt, in 
in Syria and Iraq, you have two different bath parties spring up, but essentially they, they do this, they, they try and do the same thing that Nasser says, which is we are a uh, multi-sectarian Arab political party that is primarily about our national ethnic uh, solidarity. And we are out for what is best for our, um, our, our, our nation, you know, all, the, all the different classes within it. We're not aligning per perfectly with the US and Britain. We're not aligning perfectly with the Soviets. That's what the Ba'ath Party kind of was on paper, right? Um, before things got really crazy. Um, and, and there are like examples in Asia as well, like um, the, well, okay, so I guess we could go to Iran and say Mosaddegh is another one. Um, you can go further. Uh, I don't really know what Pakistan and India's politics in the early Cold War were like, but I know there was some shit going on there. Um, Indonesia has a, a government that's kind of um, Soviet aligned, but is again like a, a sort of a, a independent a sovereign kind of thing. Um, uh, and then of course there's the communists in, in China. Um, so these kind of, these, these areas. So these like hearing you say this, it's sort of interesting, right? Like, like the more you talk about each of these individual regimes, it's like the, the sort of the Soviet bloc is imagined. It, it's not real. There are things in the Soviet bloc though, but I mean, I think well, it's like talking... Kazakhstan is in the Soviet bloc, but like China and Indonesia and Cuba aren't necessarily. Uh, Cuba, I, mean, I would say, but... probably is, but like Indonesia, like the Sukarno thing, like, um, like they, you know, I think they were kind of influenced by China probably at the time. Like, I think the the bottom line is there was a bit of an afterglow there, where, um, in like in the Marshall Plan, where there was lots of money to be had, you didn't just have to be, like, uh, a vicious colonel. Uh, you know, staging a coup um, or a tin pot dictator of whatever kind in order to get support of the U.S. and then just kind of oppress your your internal population. There were these kind of like, you know, pseudo national projects that um, that could flourish, but it didn't last long. And when we think of the Ba'ath Party now, we do think of tin pot dictators like Saddam Hussein and, uh, um, and Bashar al-Assad. And, and they're like, you know, it's not that they made that decision to like, uh, you know, um, uh, like, oh, now we just want to be venal, corrupt uh, <laughs> right. aristocrats. It's like the the the, the global game change the, that that moment where um, the Marshall Plan kind of interrupted that that Thalassian, whatever you want to call it, geopolitical grand strategy view of like kind of keeping everybody small and poised against each other for the sake of exploitative extraction. Um, that went away, and and it was no longer you know, supportable um, uh, from the pr perspective of the U.S. foreign policy people um, to, to look at like a Saddam Hussein as, um, you know, an independent regional ally who could go his own way on certain issues. Um, Wait, isn't that what we're doing with Assad like right now, though? What do you mean? We're letting him do something? I, I feel like we've been trying to kill him for a very long time. Oh, I feel like we're on his team. It's very confusing <laughs> over there. Russia's on his team. Um, yeah, it is confusing over there. Um, so, but we don't want ISIS to win. No, I think, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing we do sort of, but like ISIS is gone. <laughs> it's like, so here, so, okay, well, yeah. So let's, let's keep like, and let's, they don't let's want the Kurds to win. Like, 
you know, I think I think anybody listening to this podcast probably like our hearts are with the Kurds, but well, we'll let we'll, we'll support the Kurds up to a point, right? But then we'll like leave them in the lurch as soon as they're you know they've done their job for us. Right. And, oh, okay. I, and that's sort of everybody. Yeah. In the middle yeah, of course, east. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Okay. That makes I, sense. I mean, other yeah. than Assad, I don't think we've ever been on Assad's side, but. Um, oh, know, definitely. How did he get there? Uh, he was. His dad was there. And America didn't like his dad ever. At some point, they must. Yeah. Have. So okay. So Kissinger was the one who betrayed his dad. So they like. Okay. We've been we've been pissed at his like since the days of his dad, like since like seventy five or whatever. Right. Okay. That makes um, sense. Because, anyway, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So where does this get us on your map? What am I saying? Okay, so like, so so, the tin pot dictator thing, right? Like these kind of th- that moment was very brief where those people could be like embraced as real world leaders by the foreign policy establishment of of U.S. and the, and then and they had to start looking at that. They forced them into being just tin pot dictators, right? Um, just these kind of big mans, like in Africa, like, you know, a lot of those Cold War um, uh, fights were between like uh, a Marxist, um, like militia, and then like just a colonel or something. And they were, they're like the big man style, like dictator, right? And uh, other uh, places in Asia and and the Middle East and and, uh, South America as well. It's like this kind of like, you know, it's like this guy in like kind of gold rimmed sunglasses, a military uniform, it's like, you know, he rules the country for like 40 years and then, you know, dies of syphilis or whatever. Um, so that was kind of the world that Kissinger was managing. And uh, he was, as I said, like the top kind of foreign policy guy managing the Cold War for the U.S. Uh, he came out of Harvard. He was a CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller guy, Trilateral Commission guy. Um, after... Uh, uh, Nixon left office. Ford was the um, Ford was the uh, president, and he, he who came up under Ford was uh, uh, Rumsfeld and uh, Cheney. They were Nixon bureaucrats. They they got a big boost after Ford became president. Um, Rumsfeld's interesting. He basically was a uh, so he's a congressman. Um, and he became the 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 like the the mouthpiece for this thing called Team B, which was like a defense industry project. Basically, they were um, annoyed that the U.S. wasn't spending as much on military buildup in the mid '70s. Um, so they manufactured all of this data, uh, the, the, the CIA reports that were showing that the that the Soviet Union was building up more missiles and stuff. And then Rumsfeld would come in front of Congress and say, "We got to build like." 40 billion dollars more worth of this and 50 billion dollars more worth of that yeah give me the finger again <laughs> no i was tapping the desk i was imitating Ron- Donald Rumsfeld. yeah rumsfeld yeah so um so rumsfeld again uh you know familiar name second iraq war uh, defense uh, secretary um you know bush guy neocon uh really what he is he's he's a salesman for the defense industry at a time when they were worried that like um, you know, like the, the Cold War was maybe slowing down or that the, you know, the government was kind of turning against military spending. And so they like kind of just manufactured a, a reason for, um, for more military buildup. Um, what a fuck. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Rumsfeld's one of the worst. Yeah. He, uh, he, people like that make me hope that hell exists, but yeah. continue. Um, 
So before he get, I think I, he might have actually, yeah. So before he becomes, uh, before Reagan comes in and Rumsfeld gets his second round around about the table, you have um, Carter's Carter administration. Carter's uh, Secretary of Defense was Zbigny Brzezinski. Brzezinski himself. Zbigny Brzezinski. Okay, yeah. So that guy with the name with the Zs. Yeah, he was a Harvard colleague of uh, of Kissinger, also member of CFR and Trilateral Commission, also a Rockefeller guy. Essentially, uh, it's just a continuity. Same old fucks. Right? The difference, though, between Brzezinski and Kissinger is, whereas Kissinger was very clearly a continuation of the British balance of power, kind of um, using diplomats to like, kind of manipulate everything, Brzezinski had a kind of a new uh, revelation in this whole grand strategy uh, concept, right? Nice. Called it the Ark of Crisis. Ooh. Uh, wonderful name. Um, the arc being from, I, uh, it's basically the underbelly of the world island, the underbelly of, of the heartland. Ooh, so the it's like uh, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, um, that whole like sort of southern part of the big Eurasian continent. Why is it the underbelly? Why isn't that the, the over top? Because the top would be like Russia. I don't know, man. Like the top would be north and the bottom would be south. Sounds like, like on a racism map. to me. Well, he is a Polish aristocrat who, like, yeah, he's, I, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him to be a little racist. But no, I'm, I, I, underbelly was my word, man. Um, yeah, so I was, so I'm saying, Zeke. Uh, I didn't know growth. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, basically, what he envisioned was so after um, Iran was, uh, uh, lost to the to the Khomeini, you know, um, what do you call that? A revolution, right? Yeah, uh, that was Iran, a good one. Iran had been like kind of the the uh, U.S.'s favorite ally in the Middle East. It was a secular dictatorship. The Shah was um, basically forced into buying uh, more weapons from the U.S. than any other. Um, like he he had like a just a, a tally. Like he had to buy X number of missiles per per year. It's kind of um, funny, right? Like guys like the Shah were were basically created by the United States. Yeah. And then like later become the great enemy in there. Anyway, doesn't matter. But the the secular dictator with lots of missiles later becomes like the great enemy of the United States. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they started to move away from this because they saw the more of an opportunity in the arc of crisis. Right. Um, at first, uh, Brzezinski was uh, saying it in a cautionary way. Uh, look, we're losing everything. Like um, we just lost Iran. We're, we, we, and there's conflicts in all of these areas. We can foresee a future in which there's no stability from, uh, from like, you know, Turkey to India. Right. Um, uh, and they, and Vietnam is on the other side of that. Right. So I think it actually maybe his theory went all the way to, into uh, East Asia as well. I can't, mm. I can't remember what he was talking about, but um, it, it mostly kind of pl applies to Middle East. Um, and, uh, uh, so at, at first he was saying it in a cautionary way, but an interesting thing about Brzezinski, he, um, uh, in the, uh, you know, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, um, Brzezinski uh, cocked up a, a nice idea that they could uh, get this, a few Saudi uh, extremist billionaires to cede some money to some uh, uh, religiously sympathetic uh, 
locals. Ooh. And uh, they, they juiced Ooh. up a, li a little outfit called the Mujahideen, uh, where Brzezinski walked over and, and gave a rousing speech at one point um, to the Mujahideen fighters, saying that God was on their side. Uh, a, a, a clearly <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. being like a Mujahideen and this fuck <laughs> comes over? <laughs> like, why would they think that that was somebody to be cheered on by? I don't well, know. because he had just pulled up with like 85 tractor trailers full of stinger missiles for them too. I mean, he wasn't coming empty handed. Um, I suppose. But he did feel the need to personally give them like a theocratic speech. Yeah. Which is funny coming from like a, you know, Harvard atheist. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, so um, he, it, the point is he saw the opportunity in, in crisis, right? In, in, in that that was the war that really threw the Soviet Union off of its game. It was their Vietnam, right? They, they, they started to um, backtrack after that. And, uh, and, and the, the sort of the Brzezinski Defense Department must have um, sort of uh, uh, taken action and, and adjusted the sort of grand strategy protocols a little bit to, to, to allow for that. Because uh, ever since, we've, we've seen a, a, a global foreign policy um, that is very you know, embracing of crisis, right? Um, the Reagan administration, um, which was the following one, um, launched into Operation Condor in the uh, in South America, where I have no idea what that is. Uh, so um, Operation I'm not Con sure that we've got time. To <laughs> no, I know it's, we're going very long here. Um, but the, the so Pinochet, uh, Noriega, um, uh, who's the guy in Nicaragua there um, uh, that that overthrew the, overthrew the Sandinista governments? Uh, Mark uh, Sant? No, I forget who his name. What his name is? Um, so there were these like kind of CIA-sponsored dictators, right? That 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 kind of quashed all of these sort of um, Marxist uh, popular uh, political movements that were in a lot of cases. Okay, that's Operation Condor. Basically, yeah, more or less. Yeah, America in Latin America. Yeah, and it was done right. mostly through um, you know death squads, right? Like uh, <laughs> you know, just death squads. Yeah, rather yeah. rather rather than um, rather than sort of like you know, the embassy right. sort of finding a, a, a strong man and saying, okay, like you're, you're our guy, whatever you do, we're turning the other way. This was literally training and deploying death yeah, yeah. squads in, in those countries. Um, yeah. I mean, that's all we'll say about it, I guess, because it, it, there's, there's, I, I we don't, that's talk. a whole thing. We should probably yeah. read, there's this pretty good book called the open veins of Latin America. That mm, one day yeah. We should, we should talk about, but and, and I, yeah, I, I kind of hope to, to like, do a big long chat about that that whole era it's it's really i think the most disgusting of all but um uh so there's also the iran iraq war um which is in back in the sort of the underbelly crisis area um goes on for a very long time the u.s supports both sides and uh mostly iraq um there's the war in afghanistan against the soviets um that i already mentioned um uh that's reagan foreign policy that's just how it looks. And, and then there was like Iran Contra. So like it, it's the, the back channels of kind of like shadiness kind of accelerate as well. And then I think like the thing that really bears on how the world we live in today is how private armies and like, like um, paramilitaries became such a major part of foreign policy. And they were like, kind of like directed by CIA um, and uh, like, you know, embedded American um, sort of JSOC and whatever. It's also the era of like Gladio, which is another thing that 
deserves its own podcast, but you, you can find it at other I feel podcasts. Like I've listened to like three podcasts. About oh yeah, Gladio. there's like, a lot of there's a lot of Gladio out there. What it's about. Uh, so the I guess the upshot of Gladio is like there's a strategy of tension, right? So like rather than um, like directly attack your enemies, you do a terrorist attack and then blame it on them, and then that excels. What we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, but I mean, like, well, the whole time, I mean. Really? Well, like management of an empire by way of proxy conflict. Yeah, but this is and like shifting your enemy so that you know. Right. Like, so, but you this can't is more internally. Anybody's actual movements are. Yeah. So, like, rather than like pitting Iraq against Iran, we're talking about like blowing up a train station in Italy and saying it was the Italian Communist Party. Right. Okay. Right. So it's like it's blaming terrorist acts that you do on. Uh, the people that you want to politically hurt false flags if you will yeah that's what it's called so uh in italy and turkey for example they like uh, well, this a lot. they ratcheted up this tension because they thought that a uh you know a a, a, a terrified population that was willing to accept like basically a, a military takeover to to restore order would be more favorable to american interests than like a social democracy left-wing government Right. So they were trying to like, they, they, they preferred dictatorships, oh, pops, man. So That's like shitty. Yeah. Mm. Um, so coming just back around to the whole idea of land powers versus sea powers. Right. So now we see that like, rather than kind of pitting land powers against each other, the kind of foreign policy since the seventies and eighties has been to just like seed all of those land powers full of chaos. Right. Like you've got, private armies running around you've got drug cartels that the cia is managing um even in like more like kind of legitimate sense like like it seems like a lot of like the big like kind of deep state operations or whatever are tied to like just like the gulf state and like so i just briefly get into this like kuwait uh uae and qatar and saudi all have like zero tax rate right so like and and those all happen to be places where there's like these exorbitant um, real estate projects that happen all the time, like the Burj Khalifa and yeah, the, like, fucking awesome fake islands and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the reason for that? Like, well, first of all, there's a lot of oil floating around in the Gulf, and they want to got to fucking burn the excess for the gods, man. They got, yeah, they got to they got to park their money in something that doesn't lose money, right? So they they park it in in tax free luxury real estate because that's fucking prime for that but there's also like a, an investigation into those places um is the thing here called uh sand castles what's it called here um i just want to point out that your explanation is way less fun than mine what like for sacrificing it to the gods yeah like i don't know i think of all those places as like a giant potlatch I That's think way it's more fun. I think it's really fun what I'm about to tell you. Um, <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Go for it. So, uh, what is this by? So, there's a report uh, by the Center for Advanced Defense Studies called uh, uh, Sandcastles Tracing Sanctions Evasion Through Dubai's Luxury Real Estate Market. Basically, they, yeah. they find that, uh, yeah, fucking fun stuff. <laughs> um, they find that, like, Hezbollah and fucking, like, uh, um, some kind of like massive uh, like Chechen money laundering uh, cartel and like, you know, um, 
um, like Mexican drug dealers are basically parking their money in uh, luxury real estate. In, um, so these are actually the exact opposite of a giant potlatch is what you're telling me. These are like safe investment hoarding facilities. Uh, it's, it's, it's tax free. Um, it's like, it's a bank, right? It's like, it's a bank for drug dealers and, and, and terrorists and, and like oil uh, cartels. Like they're basically just taking the money that like in a world that valued things like, you know, going back to the Marshall Plan. Rich like people must be so boring. Like <laughs> they can't even spend the money is the thing. They can't even figure out how to spend money yeah. in ridiculous ways. Yeah. Which, you know, like if you want they do, it's just so that they have a safe real estate investment. But it's not even a safe real estate investment. It's just an absurd one. Like it's like, of course, it's like, of course they're gonna they're, those those things are gonna increase in value. You're building a theme park in the desert. Like it's it's turning dirt into oh, like fox, like, like pure gold, right? Um, so yeah, like so it's it's the exact opposite of the Marshall Plan. Basically, it's like instead of developing the the global south, they're basically parking all of the cream off the top of the of all of that money in places where nobody can get it um an extremely exclusive real estate in in tax-free uh tax havens all right so that's all we'll say about that so um that was going to be like an hour i was going to talk about that but i'll keep it to that um so so how many yeah, episodes so, did you have planned out here <laughs> i know right i thought it was just one um <laughs> so so we come back down to like the kind of dynamic between like land powers and sea powers. Like the sea power is now is now gone back to something much closer to what it was before the Marshall Plan, back in the old British Empire. It's now these like criminal cartels um, just sort of suctioning money out of all the different areas of the world and keeping it um, in places that other people can't get to it. Um, what that looks like, rather than like the East India Trading Company now, is like Gulf state construction, private armies. Um, fucking, you know, terrorism and, and, and drugs. Uh, so there is this person, Alexander Dugan, who's like a Russian weirdo, um, who looks at um, geopolitics from the telluric side. Okay. Oh, I see. He's oh, a Russian. He's wrong. Okay. So, like, <laughs> this whole time, I've just been thinking that, like, Okay, so basically this entire thing only makes sense if you're like on the, the, the good guy team. Like probably it didn't look anything like this from the other side at all, ever. And so, <laughs> all right, cool, got it. He's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dugan is, okay, I, I mean, there's, he's, he's interesting, but he is absolutely the most uh, ridiculous thinker, like the ridiculous, most ridiculous intellectual I've ever come across. I, I, I can say without, <laughs> without qualification. Um, what he's basically advocating for is that Russia should be like, a, you know, a, a land-based power, right? Damn. Well, it should not allow itself to become a pawn like, you know, Iraq or, or, or something like just, just a, you know, a, a regional influence that winds up serving the empire outside, right? Okay. But his solution to that is pan-Eurasianism, which is the heartland then becomes a whole patchwork. Control the world island. Is that yeah, the world island. Okay. A whole patchwork of equal empires, but like with a hierarchy within them of like certain 
higher empires above the other ones. And so it's like the idea is like, uh, like globalism and like cosmopolitanism and stuff are like corruptive, right? So like Russia should just be Russia and then the Ukraine should just be Ukraine. And uh, like, you know, um, fucking Mongolia should just be Men should be men, goddammit. Yeah, men should be men, you know, like traditional, like he's a very big, like he's a Julius Evola traditionalist, like a mystic, hocus pocus, um, traditionalist, better, whatever. Hocus pocus make the nuclear family (laughs) reappear, like. Well, but more like the. There's not a lot of mystical about that, but go on. More like the like Kulak or whatever, but yeah. Okay. Uh, the peasant uh, farmstead. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's bizarre. Like, it, it, like, you know, there should be, there should be a coherent response to empire and, and so on. But, but what, what this guy's, you know, interp- reinterpretation of the actual geopolitical framework is, is it, it, it's, it's useless. It's like, you can't do that. And also, he's a like he's an actual fascist. And like when the thing happened in Ukraine, he his like he like he's just like kill Ukrainians, just kill them all. Like so, his like nice hierarchy of Eurasian empire em, empires that work together, like it apparently doesn't include Ukrainians because they would all be dead. Okay, okay. so we're, yeah, that's Dugan. That's Dugan. Um, how do we sum up? Well, uh, you know, the empire is definitely back but it looks way stupider than it used to. It's just like a bunch of kind of like, is managing like criminals and chaos rather than managing like choke points and stuff. Um, um, any, any final questions or comments? How, how do you feel now? I mean, you started out feeling good. Uh, you, you enjoyed yourself, yeah. but are you changed? Is there... Um... <laughs> <laughs> the real lesson was the friends we made along the way. Would you buy testosterone pills or whatever the hell Alex Jones sells from me? Uh, would oh, you, <laughs> yeah, would you buy like creatine or whatever? You do seem virile when you talk about this. <laughs> okay, so. well, then my plan is working.